0: Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. This episode is one of a series of special dispatches on the sweeping effect that COVID-19 is having on society, the economy, and the future of work. In addition to our regular podcast episodes, we'll be bringing you shorter and more frequent interviews with business leaders, policymakers, and leading scholars on the coronavirus. My guest today is Derek Thompson, a widely followed journalist at The Atlantic Magazine. Derek's also author of the bestseller, Hitmakers, and host of the podcast, Crazy Genius. Derek writes about economics, technology, and society, and he's turned his full attention to COVID in recent weeks. Derek recently investigated contact tracing, which could become a big part of all of our lives due to the pandemic. Welcome, Derek. Great to be here. Thank you. Derek, experts recommend that we combine three things, testing, social distancing, and contact tracing. The first two, testing and social distancing, I think are pretty well known at this point, but contact tracing remains a bit more obscure. Tell us about it.
1: Right. So in its most basic form, contact tracing means essentially once you diagnose somebody as sick, say with uh, COVID-19, you trace their recent contacts, you identify all of the people uh, that may have had recent interactions with them in order to determine where the disease might have spread. So essentially, if all you do is just testing, uh, you're not fully besieging the virus, you're not surrounding it because you aren't catching all those people that might uh, have caught the disease from this person that you have just tested positive. What you want to do is quickly trace that person's contacts, starve the disease of new bodies, find those contacts, isolate them as well, and that way you really sort of draw a line, uh, draw a circle around the spread of of the disease. So historically, uh, contact tracing has worked through a really simple technology uh, called interviews. Uh, You just Ask people um, who they've recently come into contact with. So, and this is a this is a really common uh, strategy for uh, for limiting the spread of viral diseases. So, for example, to trace the spread of Ebola, uh, the CDC uh, essentially. Uh, identify people who were sick with the disease, and they asked them to list recent contacts, family, friends, businesses. And then that interview would produce a list of contacts, and then the CDC would reach out to those contacts and say, either you should get tested, you should isolate, you should quarantine, you should tell us the contacts that you've recently had. And that's really how you map the spread of a disease. Um, because you know, if you imagine sort of how a disease might spread, um, Uh, from sort of uh, uh, the the, the first individual to say the thousandth individual, you can imagine it kind of looking like a a cascade, like a a map um, of infections spreading from one to two and two to four and four to eight. And what uh, Test and Trace really is trying to do is draw a circle around that entire map and say we're isolating all these people so that the cascade stops cascading. Um, The question now, I think, for a lot of people in the US is, all right, can we rely on interviews to do this job? Can we rely on this old technology? And some people that I talked to said, no, uh, COVID and coronavirus has spread too far, too fast. It's already accelerated. And we need to find some more sophisticated technology for tracing uh, contacts. That technology is your phone. And so there are basically two big technologies that you could potentially use that are already embedded in our phone in order to, uh, sort of hunt down the spread of the virus. One is GPS. Uh, GPS obviously tells us where we are in the world. Uh, and so if, you, if, if I tested positive for COVID, uh, potentially I could upload uh, my location trail uh, to some central authority that could say, okay, Derek went to the Starbucks, he went to the Sweetgreen, he went to this Equinox. Uh, we can produce a map for other people uh, who are on this COVID tracing app that says, okay, we know that someone was just identified as, as COVID positive, they've been to these places, maybe avoid them uh, for uh, the near term. The other technology was little, which is a little bit less invasive is Bluetooth, which is uh, you know a, a near distance uh, pinging technology. Um, and with Bluetooth, what could happen is essentially if I have a Bluetooth tracing app along with everybody else in Washington DC where I live, um, once uh, I am, uh, uh, if I'm diagnosed with COVID, um, I could upload my data to a central authority um, and that authority would get a list of all of the contacts that I had pinged with my Bluetooth technology. So if I came within you know, six feet of my fiance, which is very likely, then she would be on that list. If I came within six feet, of my boss, then he would have been pinged with a Bluetooth technology and he would be on this list. And the agency could see this full list of people that my phone had come within a few feet of over the last few days and say, okay, this is the list of 13 people that we have to contact. That's a little bit more respectful of privacy because it's not a full map of location trails. It's actually not a map at all. It has nothing to do with location. It just has to do with proximity. So basically, to summarize, the two technologies that you can use with our phones, GPS and Bluetooth, the first gives you location, the second really gives you proximity.
0: Yeah, and your research has spanned the experiences of Korea, China, Singapore, Germany, and, and other places. Uh, where has the contact tracing been successful? Is it using one of these technologies? Is it also how universal it's adopted versus some opt-in strategy? What, what's been the, the characteristics of those successful
1: places? I think it's fair to say from a broad level that countries that had previously experienced outbreaks of SARS have been more successful, at least here in the short term, at limiting the spread of the disease, either because the populations have a certain familiarity with or muscle memory with social distancing, or because the governments having learned from previous outbreaks acted faster. But let's go through some of these countries one by one. I'll start with China. China has taken the most draconian measures to basically map the spread of their population, uh, take a bunch of information in order to uh, uh, code uh, individuals as being either high risk or low risk. Um, it's been, uh, I think, extraordinarily invasive and the data coming out of China uh, I- I- is pretty meager. It's, not, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to figure out exactly how bad the outbreak is right now in China, because by a lot of sources, they're essentially saying, no one's getting sick in the entire country anymore, which seems really, unlikely. Um, Second, we can look at a place like South Korea, uh, a democracy, uh, unlike China. Uh, South Korea uses a lot of different sources of information in order to do tracing. They look at cell phone location data, CCTV, credit card records. um, And when somebody tests positive, the local governments essentially send out an alert to the local population, the same way you'd receive a local flood warning, for example. And that local alert will give the newly- Uh, a COVID-positive individual's last name, their sex, their age, their district of residence, maybe their credit card history, a minute-to-minute record of everywhere they've been recently, including detail as specific as what rooms of a building they've been in. I mean, extremely, extremely specific stuff, and, and you could argue extremely invasive. And indeed, there's people who are concerned about human rights and, and, and privacy in South Korea, who say not only uh, is this, is, does this sort of violate human dignity, but also it might violate public health because the more information you give up about people that, are, are, um, that, that test positive, the more they're likely you know, to be identified and condemned online. That might make them less likely to get tested in the first place. Um, so then you, you look at a place like Singapore, and I think Singapore really offers the most... Um, potentially influential model uh, for Western democracies. Singapore uses an app called Trace Together, which uses Bluetooth technology that, as I said, keeps a log of nearby devices, nearby contacts. So again, if I get sick, um, I would upload my Bluetooth data to the equivalent of the Singaporean Ministry of Health, um, and, or if I lived, lived in Singapore, I'd upload it to the Ministry of Health, and the Ministry of Health would essentially say, "Okay, the names that have te- that have uh, been pinged by Derek's device include his fiance, his boss, uh, four of his friends, uh, the the you know barista at the local Starbucks. We're going to contact, isolate uh, these thirteen people um, to make sure that they don't spread the the, the virus." Um, and I do think that from my conversations with people both in the U.S. and in in Germany, uh, which is sort of leading the efforts in the EU to develop tracing technology that is phone based. A lot of them are looking to the Singaporean model, um, because it's more respectful of privacy, it's more likely to get buy-in uh, from, from users, um, and this, uh, this Bluetooth data is probably the most accurate in terms of uh, telling people who I actually came into close contact with.
0: In turning to the U.S., and uh, thanks for uh, taking us around the world and showing us what the frontier looks like. We're clearly uh, lagging in contact tracing, and I'd love to get your impressions of both why, and then if we were to adopt this widespread, what do you think that would look like? And maybe you can give a sense of, like, how do you think our lives would feel with uh, with contact tracing?
1: Right. So. The big picture answer about why the US is, is so far behind in terms of its response uh, to, or why it was uh, for a long time so far behind the rest of the world in terms of its response to the virus, you know, there's a lot of different reasons you could give. Um, Maybe it's our uh, sort of the, the federalist structure of our society that we necessarily or naturally outsource um, our response to the state and local level. Um, it might have to do with the fact that, you know, I, I, I would argue that the Trump administration and in many ways uh, uh, Republican governance over the last few years and decades um, has uh, questioned um, and uh, pushed against uh, science and expertise, not only in global warming, um, but also um, in, uh, you know, with with the president's firing of or, or and, and downgrading of, of the pandemic response team, um, including in this administration. Um, and then also, I think, for a variety of reasons, we've just been behind on testing. We've been behind on social distancing recommendations, even from Democrats like the New York City uh, uh, mayor. And we've been behind on, you know, masks um, and and uh, and personal protective equipment. Um, so there's a variety of reasons of why the U.S. has has, has lagged so far. Um, but given that you know Silicon Valley is very obviously in the United States, my, my, and and so is MIT and you know Caltech and a lot of other really uh, uh, wonderful. Um, Uh, universities with with really, really strong uh, tech grounding, my my hope is that we can get a little bit faster in terms of our technological response to the tracing problem. Um, In terms of what it might look like to live in a world with widespread tracing, um, let's start with the most low-tech possibility, which is that we don't get any sort of phone app because Americans are too freaked out by it. Um, We just have the old-fashioned CDC Ebola. Uh, response, which is interviews. Uh, we just interview people. You know? If I am diagnosed, I uh, can expect to get a call from you know, the Washington, D.C. Um, health department um, that says, hey, Derek, sorry to hear about your positive diagnosis. Hope you're doing all right. And you're self-isolating and self-quarantining. Um, can you tell me, give me a list of everyone, that, everything that you've done in, uh, in the last seven days and everyone that you potentially come into contact with. And so that simply uh, is, is an interview. Um, I could also imagine, however, that because this, uh, you know, is a country where Apple and Google are based, that maybe some kind of tracing app could be built into the Apple or Android OS update. Maybe something like, a, something like the Singaporean um, Bluetooth pinging model could be built into the Apple or Android OS update. So that what could happen, for example, is that um, you know i'm uh I, I people are getting tested regularly as tests ramp up and maybe one day i uh, want to go out to have dinner with some friends uh and i grab a bottle of wine and i'm sliding into the uh, front seat of my car and i feel my phone vibrate and i take out the the phone and i can see in the lock screen it says please be advised it's a message from uh, the dc uh health department and i go oh god i know what this is and i slide to open it and i read that i've been diagnosed um, with uh, with COVID. And they're asking me to just press a button on my phone that will automatically upload all of my recent Bluetooth pings uh, to some central authority that will look over those pings um, and reach out to those people. Um, and then obviously they'll be asking me to to uh, get out of the car, uh, not go have dinner with my friends, and quarantine for uh, at least the next week. Um, so I, so it, it is possible that, that something like that could be our future, that we all are living with the possibility that at any given moment uh, we could get uh, that message uh, from a, a local agency uh, on our phone that says, sorry to tell you this, you've been diagnosed, uh, we need your data, and we need you to participate um, in, in, uh, in more severe self-isolation and quarantining.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, given that our cell phones have also gotten into the health aspect, Apple Health and other kinds of things, uh, have there been any instances where they've tried to integrate some health functionality of the phone with the the tracing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, um, you know, I, as you said, am a um, economic and culture reporter who now has shifted my attention full time to. Uh, COVID. And so I'm not an expert on the full health tracking capacities of uh, our devices, uh, specifically our Apple devices. I know, for example, uh, my fiance has uh, an Apple watch. And when she is working out, she's constantly looking at it to see, all right, what's uh, my you know, beats per minute and uh, what, is, uh, what does it say about my breathing and what does it say about how far I've run? Um, but uh, I'm kind of an old school workout guy. Uh, I I go to the gym, or at least did go to the gym when gyms were legal in this country. Um, I work out at home still, but I have no, I use no technology, no Fitbit uh, or no Apple Watch in order to monitor uh, my behavior. So I don't know a whole lot about exactly what tech is available. Um, but I will say this it was absolutely a point of almost cliche that health tech was the next frontier. For Silicon Valley, as of eighteen months ago, um, and you know, way way before we were all uh, locked in um, our houses because of a pandemic, um, and so I can imagine absolutely a future—not just in the next two months, but in the next you know two decades—where we're living with a, a kind of uh, new awareness of the possibility of a pandemic, and as a result, there's an increased demand in the health functionality of all of our devices that we want to know, you know maybe from from our, our headbands, do I have a fever? Um, from our watches uh, is you know what can you tell me something about my, my breathing or, or, or my health or, or my physical activity um, that you might see, for example, and I've talked to people in New York City who have said um, the best way to get people to go back to restaurants is to give them the peace of mind um, that everyone in the restaurant is healthy. so you know wouldn't you prefer to go into a restaurant where you knew? That there was no one with a temperature over hundred in that restaurant versus a restaurant where there are a lot of people bumping into each other and r- rubbing elbows and and you know and clasping hands um, and you had absolutely no idea whether any of them were running some kind of fever. So I, I do think that you're going to see health technology integrated into a lot of parts of American society, um, but I. I don't know a lot about yeah, that, the specifics of it.
0: That's a very powerful example uh, with the restaurants and that you would want to know about others uh, as well as also your own. There, your your work has talked about this tension between privacy and, you know, let's just if we could possibly rewind the tape to like two or three months ago even at that point, there was a big question about data privacy and big tech and so forth. But we also have now this big public health concern. So do you think the, the pandemic will shift our attitudes here? And if you think, if you go to some of the other uh, countries that you've looked at, have you noticed any, um, any shift towards greater acceptance that we're going to all need to share this type of information uh, more?
1: Yeah, I guess I have two answers to that question. The first answer is that when I think about you know, how are American attitudes? toward privacy or government power shifting. I mean, just look at, like, turn inward. Look at yourself. Like, we are all under house arrest. We are all allowing our local and state governments to put us under house arrest. And most of us aren't complaining. If you look at governor approval ratings across the country, they're basically soaring, unless you're Governor DeSantis in Florida. I mean, all over the country, people are talking about Gavin Newsom in California and Cuomo in New York as being potential presidential candidates, not in 2024, in 2020. <laughs> like, people are so proud of leadership, even though that leadership is resulting directly in their loss of employment, their loss of livelihood, and their loss of literal freedom. They can't leave their friggin' houses. So that tells me that Americans are absolutely renegotiating their relationship with values that might have seemed previously non-negotiable. How that translates to privacy is interesting. So I do think that in many ways, the privacy concerns that were being raised in the last few years were being led by the media, that the New York Times and the Atlantic and you know, people like me were saying, are we sure we want these big tech companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook to have this much power over our lives and our behavior? Do we want them listening in and manip- to, our, to our lives and manipulating um, our, our, our behavior? We kept asking these questions, but what happened in the public? They kept using Instagram. They kept buying Amazon Echoes. They kept using Google. Um, they seemed to understand that there was this sort of social contract with these tech companies that was like, yeah, I use you, you're free. And the cost of my participation is that you spy on me a little bit and I'm okay with that. So it's possible that, is, that you take that and then you amplify it with the new sort of renegotiated social contract of the pandemic. And you can imagine a lot of Americans would be like, fine, if you're telling me that downloading a Bluetooth app on my phone means that life can go back to normal six months earlier and I can be rehired and my kids go back to school, et cetera, I am definitely gonna take that. That's That seems to be a possibility. But I also think that because um, the media is influential and uh, there are a lot of people who are duly concerned with, you know, the U.S. taking maybe what, what should be a temporary um, public surveillance program during the pandemic and extending it sort of Patriot Act style into a permanent surveillance program, that, that the fear of that could uh, lead tracing in the U.S. or, you know, public health policy in the U.S. Um, to leave the phone stuff on the side for a while and say, OK, what can we do in the short term? We can do masks. We can do fever checks in buildings. We can do uh, you know, a, a 10x increase in tests maybe if we you know, increase the availability of, of swabs and, and testing kits. Um, maybe let's start there. And then we'll think about turning our phones into espionage devices.
0: Uh- Thank you. And that is a great segue to maybe our our last question here, which is while you've been under house arrest uh, in in your apartment uh, and in between your exercising, uh, you've also been a kind of a front row seat for policy responses to the pandemic. Uh, Any key takeaways you're emphasizing at this point?
1: Yeah, um, my, my big take here is that we've already done way more than I expected at the federal level. And it's also not enough. So the economic rescue plan was massive. I mean, you can criticize it a hundred different ways. You could say there's not enough money for small businesses, which I think is true. You could say the checks are too small, they're too delayed, which is true. You could say our unemployment insurance offices across the country weren't ready for this deluge of uh, jobless claims, which is obviously true. But the economic rescue package was $2 trillion. I mean, we committed in a matter of weeks to spend 10% of the U.S. economy in a matter, like to be concentrated in a matter of like three months. Um, that was a huge response. And that was a, spon- that was a response that was appropriate um, given the level of the crisis. So we need more. Um, this is an absolutely bizarre and horrible economic shock that in many ways, as I've written, has turned economic policy on its head. I mean, you have economists saying that uh, able-bodied people should stop working you have economists saying that uh, fantastic companies should stop operating. Um, you have economists essentially rooting in the very short term for a recession. They are saying we should put the economy into a kind of coma for the next few months and hope that we can take the economy out of the coma, You know, thaw the deep freeze uh, you know, once the pandemic is over. Um, So given that economics has been turning its head in the short term, I think the response has been really, really strong. Um, But I also think more needs to be done. And in particular, I think more needs to be done on the small business front. Um, There are six million small businesses in the U.S. Um, That is a lot of phone calls to the SBA and to local banks. Uh, Six million. Uh, to be specific. Um, and uh, we need more money to be available uh, to these small businesses because what we don't want to happen is that when we wake up from this induced coma, uh, we wake up to you know, 35% unemployment and 1 million declared bankruptcies. Uh, what you want to do as much as possible, I think, is freeze the economy in place. Say everyone, to the extent that you can, just stay where you are, hold on, hold your breath. And we know you can't hold your breath forever, we're going to help you, but we're going to find a way to transition to a more normal economy. It's not going to go 1% normal to 100% normal, and I would consider us right now at 1% normal, but 1% normal to 20, 20 to 50, 50 to 60, um, and, and eventually back to the fully normal economy that you can hopefully have if you have widespread uh, effective antiviral medication or a vaccine.
0: Derek, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you introducing us to contact tracing as well as also these broader perspectives. Thank you. Uh, Derek Thompson is a writer for The Atlantic as well as also his own podcast series. Uh, He's producing an article, it seems, about every five days related to the COVID uh, crisis. So I recommend you you look it up and uh, keep in touch with the work he's uh, conducting. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Managing the Future of Work podcast. To find out more information about our project on the future of work and for more information on the coronavirus' impact, visit our website at hbs.edu forward slash managing the future of work and sign up for our newsletter.